book of Isaiah, that's in the Old Testament, the prophets. Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the word, the scriptures that give us the way of salvation, the way of sanctification, and we're thankful that you've given them to your people and that we continue to have your word so that we might learn from it, grow from it, so we might know you better and know the, the ways that you work and your attributes, all the wonderful things we need to learn about you. So I pray this morning that we might learn the book of Isaiah, give it a good overview, and it will help us in our reading of this book. In Jesus' name, amen. You should be reading the Old Testament. Hopefully you have a Bible and a year plan or something similar. You should be looking at what these say. It would be great if you could read along with this class. So to let you know where we're going the next few weeks, we'll be covering the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. We'll do Lamentations in one week and then Ezekiel. But Isaiah, this is our second week really on Isaiah. We'll spend two weeks on Ezekiel and two weeks on Jeremiah. So I know those are big books, but maybe you can read fast and get them covered in two weeks. It would help you. Uh, this class is designed to help you read the Bible better and understand it, to make more sense of it, because these are hard books. The Old Testament's hard enough. Isaiah's hard. We often think Jeremiah and Ezekiel are hard, and they are in their own way. But as we'll see today, Isaiah mixes a lot of future stuff with things that are happening in his day. His prophecies are near and far, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish the two. You don't know if he's talking about his lifetime, when Christ comes the first time, when Christ returns, so second coming. It's difficult to determine exactly what he's saying. So the more you read, the more you can understand. And a class like this is designed to help you understand even better. Just a review, and to make sure this gets on uh, the recording, the title is named after the prophet himself, Isaiah. And that's his name in Hebrew. Yeshaya comes into Greek as Isaiah, Isaiah, and uh, into English, if you're in Britain, as Isaiah, Americans Isaiah. We always put an accent. We've got to be different from the British. So when they still, if you hear a British preacher, I think Alistair Begg says he does about half the time the right way and half the time the British way. Other guys, Isaiah. The theme is salvation. So why is it in our Bibles? Well, the purpose is that the Holy Yahweh, the covenant name of God, is not going to permit unholiness in his people. God won't stand by while his elect people continue in their sin. And so he will therefore chasten them and purge them and make, shape them through captivity. He's going to take them away from their promised land into captivity, and this is going to shape them. This is going to do something. It's going to make them yearn for the Holy Land, for Jerusalem. And tribulation is going to occur to take them into captivity. And that's going to make a remnant. So in the end, a remnant will come back. Those who really love God. Those who want to be in His holy land, His holy nation. The dates 739 to 681. These are the dates of the events in the book. We can date that from the time that Isaiah was called into ministry. Isaiah was called in 739 B.C. when King Uzziah died. Lots of funny names here, Hebrew names. King Uzziah died in 739. I, Isaiah the prophet's probably in his teenage years, maybe 16, 14, 18, can't be sure, but he's young. And then it goes all the way through the death of Hezekiah in 686, and probably Isaiah outlives Hezekiah by a few years till 681 
BC and a little bit after that because Sennacherib has his death recorded in the book of Isaiah. Any questions on those things so far? We covered this last week if you weren't here. This is where they found some evidence of Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. So King Hezekiah had a seal and Isaiah had a seal. People had seals back then. They had little bulla, little uh, circular clay objects on their rings that they could press or maybe just a little sort of like an ink blotter that they would press their seal into the clay, into the wax, sorry, into the wax that sealed their messages that they would send. And so they found one that has the name Isaiah. Even secular, even non-believing Jewish scholars would agree that this is probably the Isaiah of the Bible. It fits the right time period, the right location. This is Hezekiah's seal, or bulla. He's got his name there. If you could read Paleo-Hebrew, that's what it says. And they agree that this indeed is proof that the Bible is true. Now, we know the Bible is true. We, we have the Holy Spirit testifying to that. But unbelievers need a little archaeological evidence, so they find this all the time. It's not a surprise to us. They found it here just outside the Temple Mount in a little area there circled in red. So now let's get to the new material. Let's talk about the outline of Isaiah. And the book can be broken into two major sections. We can talk about what happens in Isaiah's lifetime. That's the chastening of God. Most of the first section is what's happening at the moment he's writing or is about to happen within his lifetime. That's the chastening of God 1 through 39. And first he talks about the rebellion of God's people. Before he even gets to his own commission as a prophet, look at chapter 1 of Isaiah. And look how he starts off. This is not a feel-good kind of make you feel great, have a successful, happy day sort of book. That's why a lot of Christians don't always like the prophets, but it's good for us to read this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns. And now he lists the different kings that he prophesied in, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. So here's what God says. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So Israel is God's child. He essentially brought them into being. He birthed them. He uses this analogy over and over, the analogy of birthing a child, and they have rebelled. It's like a child who grows up in your home. You give them everything, and then they turn and rebel against you. And so this is the nation, the whole people. doesn't mean that there weren't some people who believed. There weren't some who followed God. But the majority had turned aside. The leaders had turned aside. And he goes on, A lost sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. What was Israel's main sin? Why are they going to go into captivity? What was their main sin? Idolatry. They were turning away from the one true God and worshiping the gods of the nations. They were seeking something else. They didn't get what they wanted from God, in other words, so they were going somewhere else for it. And this was, in those days, the gods of the nations around them. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. So he goes on from there for five chapters. And then in chapter 6, 
we get the solution. What's, what's going to happen? God's people have abandoned, they have rebelled. And then in 6.1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah walks into the temple and sees this vision. And his vision is is of the Lord, is of God. Now we find out in the New Testament, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Because no one can see God the Father. But this is the pre-incarnate Christ. John tells us in the Gospel of John chapter 12 that Isaiah saw him. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And so he walks in and sees the Lord, Adonai. And he sees this huge image of the throne and this being sitting on uh, the Lord sitting on his throne and the robes filling the whole temple. And the main attribute of God that's called out by these angels, these seraphim, is holy, holy, holy. In contrast to Israel, God is holy, holy, holy. He's the thrice holy God. He's not going to stand by and watch his people go into sin. These are his people, even though many of them were unbelievers. They're the physical seed of Abraham. He had promised to keep them in the land. They promised to obey the law. They promised to obey the Mosaic commandments, the Mosaic law. So here's what happens. The foundation of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Anytime things fill with smoke or a cloud, that means God's presence is often there. It usually brings about fear. Then I said, woe is me. This is Isaiah's response. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So he recognizes God is perfectly holy. And he recognizes Israel. They're all in sin. He lives, even though he's a follower of the true God, he lives among people who worship false gods. And he knows he deserves death because of his own sin. And so it says one of the seraphim flew and they took up a burning coal and they came and touched it on his mouth. And this vision, that signifies the cleansing of sin. And your iniquity has been taken away, the Lord says. Your sin is forgiven. So he's confessing his sin before the Lord. And the Lord shows him a vision to remind him that, look, sin is forgiven and those who trust in, in the Lord and confess their sin. But here's the message Isaiah now has to take, which he's already really been telling us in chapters 1 through 5. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is often preached as sort of a a missionary text. Who's going to go out into the world and be a missionary? And so they'll preach this text. But this isn't taking the good news. It says, God says, Go and tell this people. So what is he going to go tell Israel? Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. This is judgment. It's a message of judgment. Go to them and tell them they can keep on looking and they can keep on listening, but they're not going to see, they're not going to understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, 
and return and be healed. Jesus will quote from sections like this in Isaiah to show that in his day, even Israel still had a hard heart. They did not want to hear the message. And even though they had already turned away from God, God continues to send the message out of truth, of good news, and yet they still reject it. It's almost like judgment is already starting. God is saying, I'm going to send a prophet to you, and you're still not going to listen. In fact, I'm going to make sure you don't understand. That's what he's saying here. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. This is judgment starting already on those who've turned away. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long, Isaiah says, do I have to keep preaching this message? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. So keep preaching this message of judgment until everything's destroyed, till Jerusalem is destroyed. Yet there'll be a tenth, a remnant, ten percent. And it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So Israel's like a tree. There's going to be a fire come through and burn up the tree, but there'll be something left. The stump will be left. And often when a tree burns like that, it will have new growth come out of it in the future. So that's Isaiah's commission. That's not a fun task. That's similar to we'll see in Jeremiah. That's not something you enjoy doing. Isaiah enjoyed pleasing the Lord, but he's got to go and proclaim judgment. Now, he'll have some good things to say, especially in the second part of his book. But the first part is the chastening of God. The first part is how Israel rebelled. Then in 7 through 12, retribution to Israel and Assyria. So chapter 7, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that these two other kings, Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. So the king of the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom, it stayed closer to God than the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, as soon as the two kingdoms in Israel split, the north went into idolatry. They're going to be taken away into captivity and destroyed sooner than the south. The south will also be destroyed and taken into captivity. But at this point, the northern kingdom, the kinsfolk, the the fellow Israelites are going to attack their cousins in the south. And they join with a pagan king, the king of Aram. And so God is going to pronounce judgment upon them. He's going to pronounce judgment upon Israel, that's the northern kingdom, and upon Assyria. Assyria is the most powerful country in the world at this time when Isaiah starts. So by the time you get to chapter 10, God is saying he's going to use Assyria as his instrument. He's going to use a pagan nation to come and wipe out the northern kingdom called Israel. He's going to destroy their capital, Samaria. He's going to take them into captivity. That's often called the the 10 northern tribes. And sometimes people will say, well, the 10 northern tribes have been lost. And they don't, they don't come back like the ones that go to Babylon. The southern kingdom, two tribes there go to Babylon and come back. What happened to the northern tribes? 
and you have all kinds of speculation. You can buy interesting books that say they ended up in Britain, and that's the British people. They ended up in America, you know, and, and that's the Native Americans. But many of them would have gone south. Those who truly believed in what God was doing would have just come south and stayed when Assyria came into the north. So I think they were preserved in that way. So we get to chapter 13, and what about the other nations? That's nice, God, that you're going to use Assyria as your instrument and then punish them for what they do. What about the other nations? So Isaiah prophesies against them. That's a long section, 13 through 35. So if you're just scanning the chapter headings, judgment on Philistia in chapter 14, judgment upon Moab in 15, continuing with Moab in 16, 17 is a prophecy against Damascus. This is Aram, the kingdom or nation of Aram, the Arameans. 18, Ethiopia. What's that got to do with it? Well, Ethiopia was powerful. That was a country in Africa, just to the east of Egypt, very powerful in this day. They're going to be judged. Egypt is going to be judged. Both of them are mentioned again in 20. Now, throughout these judgments, there's hope. We're not stopping to look at all those passages, but there's there's hope. There is uh, uh, oftentimes pointing to the future, and God is saying, I'm going to bring people in, even from these nations that I judge. I'm going to bring them in, and they will be my people. Chapter 22 is the Valley of Vision. And this is an interesting prophecy of a coming battle. I encourage you to read all of these when you have time. The fall of Tyre. So Tyre wasn't really a nation, but a very wealthy city. And they thought they were like gods there. They treated their king as a god. And so Tyre is going to be destroyed, Isaiah says. And not just all of these nations, but in chapter 24, the whole earth will eventually be judged. The whole earth will be destroyed. God is not going to let anyone get out of punishment for their sin. It's not just Israel. See, Israel's reading Isaiah and they're thinking, why are you punishing us? We're your people. What about everybody else? Well, here's God's answer to that question. They will be punished as well. Let's skip forward now to the last section. The last section, really 36 through 39 here of this part of the book, is a historical account of Hezekiah. So the leader of the Assyrians, the king, remember we talked about him last week, Sennacherib. Sennacherib is going to come south and attack Jerusalem, God's city. And the king there, Hezekiah, is concerned. Now, they've already, the, the Assyrians have already destroyed the north. And they say, why not keep going? We're going to destroy the southern kingdom as well. And you have this guy, Rabsaka, he even says, Look, we've destroyed all the nations. And God has used us as an instrument to do that. Your God has used us. So we're going to succeed. And then remember, if you read this, he stands outside the wall and he speaks to them in Hebrew. And he tells them, just give up. There's no use. None of the other nations stood against us. None of their gods protected them. And the leaders of the city who were corrupt, they said, no, don't talk to us in Hebrew. Talk to us in Aramaic. Talk to us in the language of the Assyrians, and, and we understand that, so the people don't hear. They're, they're concerned about rebellion. So he keeps mocking them. He mocks God there in chapter 36. And Hezekiah asks Isaiah the prophet, what's going to happen? How is this going to turn out? And so let's pick up in 37. When 
King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. So when he heard about the fact that Assyria was going to destroy them, and that this guy was outside the wall with his army, mocking. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe, the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. They're under siege. They're weak. They're giving up hope. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, this guy outside the wall who's mocking them, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So there's a few of us left in the city. Please pray for us, Isaiah. Maybe God will hear you. So Isaiah says here in verse 6, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. And Isaiah is giving a prophecy now of the actual words from the Lord. And he says, God's not going to put up with that guy out there mocking him. Of course not. He's blaspheming God. Verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So the king of Assyria is going to hear a rumor. Things are bad back home. He's got to go back. This happened often with kings in the ancient times. They would worry that their country was going to be taken over by a son or some sort of rival. And so he's going to have to go back and deal with that and then die by the sword there. And that eventually ends up happening. Sennacherib goes back. So we'll look at that in a moment. So he leaves. Uh, Hezekiah prays in the temple to God. God answers. You can see Isaiah's Speaking more there in the end of chapter 37. Look in uh, 37, 36. I like this story here. So the king leaves and goes back to his own land, but his army's still there. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord. Again, I think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Whenever it says the angel of the Lord, if you were with me in theology class, we went through all those verses, and the angel of the Lord is Jesus. That, that would be his human name. But we'll just say the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. He came down and struck 185,000 dead. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all these were dead. I think it's in Second Kings where it talks about the, the beggars go out there. They can't get into the city. It's before the gates open. They go out to the Assyrian camp. They notice no one's around. They just start grabbing things, food, items. Verse 37, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, returned home, and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, that Adrimelech and Sharazir his sons killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And then Esarhaddon and his son became king in his place. So it happened exactly like Isaiah said it would. He would go back, he would hear a rumor, rush home, and then he would be killed by the sword, even by his own sons. And this army, one angel, the angel of the Lord, wiped them all out. Then Hezekiah, in chapter 38, he gets a disease, he's going to die. He prays to the Lord, turns his face to the wall, he confesses his sin to God, and Isaiah comes in and says, the Lord's going to give you 15 more years. You'll live 15 more years. 
So this is good, but Hezekiah doesn't end so well. Chapter 39, the last chapter on him. He invites the people, the messengers, emissaries of Babylon to come in. Chapter 39, at the time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon. So Assyria is the power, but Sennacherib goes home and gets killed, and they're going to start to wane in power. Babylon is on the rise at this time. They're going to grow in power and might. And just before they really become a, a world power taking over Assyria, this happens. Chapter 39, the king of Babylon sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house. The silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. What do you think that's going to make the Babylonians want? They're going to want want that. They're going to want to come and take all of that. That is exactly what kings did back then. And so Hezekiah is bragging. He's showing off. He might even be saying, look at how the Lord has blessed us. Look at how our God has blessed us. Look at this. Look at that. He's boasting. And it doesn't even say he's talking about the Lord, though. He's just saying all that he had owned, all that he had. So Isaiah shows up, verse 3. He came to the king and said to him, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country from Babylon. Isaiah said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, here's his great answer. The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. That's a good answer, right? But here's what was in his mind. For he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. I'm fine. Let God's word be accomplished. Amen, brother. Amen. It's not happening my day. I don't have to worry about it. Isaiah, in general, was a good king. He took down the altars of the false gods. He was one of the better kings listed in 2 Kings. But at the end here, he got boastful. He got prideful. God already said that Jerusalem would be destroyed. He's going to use the Babylonians to do it. And through Hezekiah's own boasting, own pride, he's going to be the means by which he shows off all of these things And God's going to use that to bring Babylon in. Because they're thinking, what nations should I attack? Remember when we sent messengers? And our Father's Day, we sent messengers to Israel. And they had all that wealth. Let's go attack them. So that's the end of what happens in Isaiah's lifetime. So what's the second part about? The future. Comfort. If the first half of the book is about judgment and retribution and punishment and captivity and destruction. Well, there's going to be a time when people are in captivity and they're going to need comfort. So long before it ever happens, 
God inspires Isaiah, gives Isaiah the exact words of God to put in this part of his book. Because they're going to look back and say, why did this happen? Why are we in captivity? Chapters 1 through 39. Now what do we do? Well, we look forward to the promises of God. Look how chapter 40 starts. Comfort, oh comfort my people. This is the theme of the rest of the book. Comfort, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The judgment has come. It has happened. Now God is giving them comfort. So they're going to read this. You can imagine in captivity, if you had a a Bible, you had access to it, they would want to read this over and over. This is looking forward. Now they didn't know when all these things would happen, but they could teach their children to look forward. Why did people rush back in the days of Isaiah? At least some of them were ready to go back to a barren land that hardly anybody lived in anymore because they'd been reading Isaiah. They'd been reading of the promises that were to come. So verse 3 is a famous section here. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Where is that reference in the New Testament? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So now we get into the second part of the book that's a bit tricky. Is Isaiah saying... This is going to happen when they go back to Israel 70 years after the captivity? Or is this when Jesus comes the first time or the second time? Now he cited John the Baptist. But is every valley, has it been lifted up? Have we seen every mountain and hill made low? So is it both? Is it one or the other? Is it all three? That's some issues we'll have to look at in a minute. So he goes on really in chapter 40 through 48 to talk about the purpose of peace. Why is God comforting them? Because he's their God. And much of chapter 40 and 41 just describes who God is. A lot of verses we get to describe the attributes of God are listed there. In 49, though, it switches from talking about Israel uh, and their deliverance of Israel to the one who's going to deliver them, the Prince of Peace. So this is where we get the famous chapter 53 about the suffering servant. But even in 49, we see, listen to me, O islands, pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. So whoever this is speaking is like a a sword, like an arrow. He's going to do something specific. He has hidden me in his quiver. He has said to me, you are my servant. Israel, and whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have told in vain. So he goes on to describe the servant. In Isaiah 53, he's the suffering servant. In 49 and other passages, he's, he's more of a warrior servant. And then the last section, 58 through 66, is what's going to happen after this prince of peace comes, after this servant does his work, the program of peace. Israel's destiny. Israel's destiny. We're familiar with the the last few passages, probably 66, right? The new heavens, the new earth. We won't go through those because we're short on time, but I love Isaiah and I love the second part of Isaiah more than the first. The first has got some good stuff. I, I love the peace, the comfort, 
the verses that tell us about God here in this second part of Isaiah. Key chapters, we've, we've been through some of these. Chapter 6, Isaiah's calling. Isaiah's calling and commissioning. 13 is the judgment of Babylon. If you're sitting in captivity reading Isaiah, which has been written over 100 years before the captivity, you want to know that Babylon will be judged too. Because what do we ask today? Why, God, are you letting these people get away with such evil? Why, God, are you letting so many babies be murdered in the womb? Why are you letting them get away with that? Well, they would have said, why, God, are you letting Babylon get away with what they did to us? They destroyed your city. So chapter 13 would have been helpful for them to see that judgment's coming for Babylon as well. The whole earth will be judged, chapter 24. 36 and 37, we looked at deliverance of Hezekiah and Judah. That's really the hinge in the book, the ending of what's happening in Isaiah's day. 40 through 48, the deliverance, the promise to Israel. 53, the suffering servant. You guys know chapter 53. It's, I think I preached on it at Easter time, Resurrection Sunday. But let's look at a few verses here. 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people. So, so he's talking to Israel here. The servant here is little s, Israel. So his appearance was marred more than any man. Now we know that's talking about Jesus today. And his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. So we already see the language of atonement, substitutionary atonement, where Christ, the Messiah, would take the place of the sinner and suffer and die. Something you may have not thought of before, though, is... Chapter 53 is in what section of Isaiah? Second part, which is meant to give comfort to Israel. But it's taking place in the future. This is what the people of Israel will say when they look back on their Messiah. Now we say it as Christians, we're, we're grafted in. We can rightly use this passage to speak of what it's done for us, what Christ has done for us. But as this happened, has, has the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, said this thing? Look at who, whom we pierced. Not yet. They will. They will because it says right here, you can compare this with Romans 11. This is coming in the future. We say this. We agree with this. We see where Isaiah is pointing forward. We can claim these promises as Gentile believers. But one day, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. When Christ returns, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a nation of people that turn and say this very thing. This is in that section of the book 
pointing to the future. And then 66, the glorious future in Zion, the consummation of history. What's coming in the far, far future. Key passages, Israel's rebellion described. We looked at that. But God says, my own sons, my own children have rebelled. Let's look at 118. Many of these you might be familiar with if you've studied Isaiah or even been around Christianity for a while. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's a great passage. Why is that good? Forgiveness, cleansing, atonement. That's a great passage. And yeah, that's that's written to Israel. But remember, we're, we're Gentile believers. We're grafted in. We can go back and pull these forward to us as well. This is God talking about the gospel. It's coming. There's going to be a time of forgiveness. And even in that day, they could come to God and ask for it. They didn't, most of them. Chapter 6, 1 through 7, Isaiah is called a ministry. John, This is the passage in the New Testament where you see he was talking, seeing a pre-incarnate Christ. John 12, we won't go there, but uh, also the virgin birth, 7.13. We'll come back to that passage. 9.6, the birth and reign of the Prince of Peace. Everybody knows that one, right? Is that the Hallelujah Chorus at Christmas? comes from this, Prince of Peace. It's a great passage here. It, it, it's sung at Christmas time, but it's really not about the birth as much as the, the reign of the coming Messiah. I think the millennial kingdom, 9-6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government on the throne of David over his kingdom. 43, that's John the Baptist prophesied. I'm sorry, I skipped 11, 11, 1 through 6. So even in the even in the section on judgment, look how God splices in some of these passages on hope. So this comes right after, who's the last one to be judged here? Assyria. Assyria is going to come. They're going to destroy the northern kingdom. And then in verse 20, a remnant will return to the land. Then after that, chapter 11, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. 700 years before this guy is going to be born. And Jesse was a few hundred years before Isaiah. That's David's father. And here's God speaking exactly with names. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. This is describing the Messiah. This is describing Jesus. He's the, the branch from the root of Jesse. From David's line. Chapter 40, 27 through 31. God's people will be delivered. Those who come to God will be rescued, will be saved. It's one of my favorite passages from Isaiah to preach on. I think I've preached it two or three times in different places. This is the one on eagle's wings. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? So the people are crying out at this point, God, you've ignored us. Here we sit in Babylon with nothing. You've taken away our country. You've taken away our city, the temple. We can't do sacrifices. It's almost like we're not getting justice. And God says, why do you say that? Why do you say that? And then 28 and following is what he's going to do about it. He's reminding them. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. God doesn't get tired as if he can't hear you. He's not like these other gods who get tired and need to be fed, need to have, need to sleep. He's always there. The problem isn't that God's not there, that he doesn't know what's going on. The problem is we don't understand God. We don't know his ways. His understanding is inscrutable. He does give strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly. So even the best, strongest men in humanity are weak at times. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Yes, when they come back to the land, this is speaking of that, but also spiritually speaking, it can be applied to our everyday life. And certainly in the new heavens and the new earth, when Christ returns and, and even sets up his kingdom, this applies as well. 53, 4 through 6, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We just read that. 55, 11, God's word will accomplish its purpose. I think I'm quoting that one in the sermon today. 61, let's look at 61, 1 through 3. So much. We're, we're going to run out of time on Isaiah. We're going to have to get into all the interpretive issues next week. 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. Where else do you see that in the Bible? Yeah, when he reads the scroll in Nazareth. And he's, and he's rejected, right? But this is his mission. He says, this is why I came. I came to do this. It happens in Luke 4. This is why I came. I came to do the things that Isaiah prophesied. And he quotes right here from this passage. I think that one's in the sermon today as well from Luke. 64.6 speaks of the total depravity of man. We all know this one. Your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Key people, we've already covered them, but here they are listed for you. In case you want a quick reference when you read the book of Isaiah. Prophet to Judah, that's Isaiah. There's his dates. Who, who is this king, Uzziah? He's also called Azariah and Second Kings. So if you're reading Second Kings and you wonder, where is this guy, Uzziah? Well, there his name is slightly different. It's Azariah. People have many names back then that they go by. Um, he became king at 16 years old. He reigned for a long time, 52 years. He was struck with leprosy for burning incense in the temple. This is the guy who goes into the temple, decides he's going to take over for the high priest and do what he wants. They rush in, they grab him. He says, what are you guys doing? I can do what I want. And then suddenly his hand starts turning leprous. They rush him out before his whole body gets leprosy. He died after Isaiah was called into prophetic ministry. That year Isaiah was called, he died. And that's in 6.1. Ahaz is the king of Judah after Uzziah, so Uzziah's son. Israel and Aram come to attack him at Jerusalem, and Isaiah prophesies the child Emmanuel to him in chapter 7. But Ahaz was a wicked guy. He burned his son. He burned his son on the altars of the false gods to Molech. He worshipped pagan deities. He asked Assyria for help, which is a no-no. You're supposed to ask God for help. He died in battle. That's in 2 Kings as well. Who's this guy? Snack on a rib here. By the way, you see the second part of his name? Cherub. Cherub, that's cherub, like cherubim. The angels that are mentioned throughout Scripture. The ones that are most closest to God. Even the ancient peoples believed in these beings called cherubs. These angels that had the different faces on them. In fact, in, in Babylon, they even built these statues that had the lion and the bear, eagle. So Sennacherib was an Assyrian king. He besieged Jerusalem in 701. 
The angel of Yahweh killed his army of 185,000. He went home. He was murdered by his sons. There's a lot in archaeological history on Sennacherib. Hezekiah, king of Judah, showed Babylon his treasures, was deathly ill. God miraculously healed him, gave him 15 more years. What kind of a resource would help you? This is a good commentary on Isaiah. It's not real detailed. doesn't get into Hebrew. It's kind of mid-level commentary. It goes deep enough to where you can really learn from it. But it's not going to bore you with lots of footnotes and detail. J. Alec, I don't know how to say it in French. He's an, he's an American, but he has a French name. I think it's Matier, and his book is called The Prophecy of Isaiah. It's published by InterVarsity Press. It's not the little bitty one that's from the Tyndale Old Testament commentaries. He also wrote one there. This is more expanded, The Prophecy of Isaiah. All right, we have some time, so let's jump into interpretive problems. These are not problems for Isaiah. They're not problems for God. They're not problems for the Bible. They're problems for people trying to interpret the Bible. And usually the first one on the list is not a problem for us. It's a problem for liberals. But we have to cover it because somebody's going to tell you someday, or you're going to open a commentary, you're going to be reading, and it's going to say there's two Isaiahs who wrote this. There's three men who wrote this book. And so you just need to be familiar with it. The critical viewpoints, that's the liberal Christian viewpoints. When we're talking liberal, we're not talking like Demo- Democrat, even though if a Christian is a liberal, they, might, they probably are a Democrat. But this is liberal Christianity. Those who don't believe the Bible is the word of God, those who are always seeking to undermine it, those who are seeking to say that it was a work of man, not a work of God. They say, look, there's two Isaiahs. They say Deutero. Deutero means two in Greek. So you sound really you know, smart when you say Deutero. So they say, look, we have Isaiah who wrote the first 39 chapters, but he couldn't know all that stuff in the future. Nobody can know that. So that's a guy later. We'll just call him Deutero Isaiah. What's this denying? That God knows the future? That God can send a man, a prophet, who speaks his words? And knows the future. Another view is Trito Isaiah. So if you have two, why not three, right? Let's go for three. Isaiah, he lived in chapters 1 through 39, so he could write that. But it must be another guy who wrote 40 through 55, and even another guy who wrote 56 through 66. And then this last one's a redaction of all this material. So some guy comes along in history, and they find all these different writings with Isaiah's name on them, and he kind of puts it together and says, this is the book of Isaiah. We're not going to really pick any of these, but that's the liberal view. Orthodox view. These are orthodox being people who believe that Scripture is inspired by God. So these are good views to choose from. I like number one, one author, Isaiah. In fact, John chapter 12 says, Isaiah saw him. Isaiah is the one in chapter 6 that says he was commissioned by God to go. So why not just take the traditional view that's always been held by Jews and, and believing Jews and and Christians until recently, and that's that Isaiah the prophet wrote it. Another view that the good and godly men sometimes take is that somebody took all the things that Isaiah spoke on and wrote on and then put them together to make up this book, kind of like you would find in the Psalms. So there's my choice if you want to circle it. Hopefully that's your choice too. Don't choose any on that first list, okay? No Deutero, Trito. If you're trying to teach the book of Isaiah, this is really frustrating because all the commentary is just about you know, try to talk about this. Even if they're good Christian believing commentaries, they still got to deal with all this liberal stuff because it's out there in the scholarship. Okay, something more interesting. 714. You guys know this passage, Emmanuel. And we'll just end on this one. So 714, the, the king at the time, Ahaz, the evil one, the one that burned his son, he's being attacked. He's being attacked by the northern 
kingdom and the Arameans. And they are joining together to attack. And so Ahaz, he's scared. So back to 7-1, it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war. So he's scared. What do you do? Isaiah is going to give him a message. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz through Isaiah. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. So you can trust that these people are not going to destroy Jerusalem. It's not time yet. It's not God's will. Ahaz is an unbeliever, so he doesn't care. So Isaiah says, God has said, ask a sign. Now, you don't test God, except when he tells you to. If he tells you to lay out a golden fleece, then you do it. If he tells you to test him and ask for a sign here, you do it. Today, God doesn't tell us that because we have the whole Bible. And if that's not enough to make a wise decision by, then you're in trouble. But in those days, he says, look, this is my nation. This is my people. This is the house of David. Give me a test. As deep as Sheol, as high as heaven, ask any test, any sign that will confirm my message to you so you can have some faith, so you can have some hope that this city will not be destroyed right now. But what does Ahaz say? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He thinks he's too good for that. He's not going to do that. That's ridiculous. He, he plays like he's got a lot of faith. Oh, it's wrong to test God. But he really just doesn't care what God has to say. He's scared. That's all he's thinking about. Verse 13, then he said, listen now. O house of David. This is Isaiah. God speaking through Isaiah. Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? You're trying his patience. Don't try God. Do what he says. Ask for a test. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for it. God's going to give it anyway. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel which in Hebrew means God with us. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So the question is, that verse that we see in the New Testament, that verse that we talk about at Christmas, who is it speaking of? A child of Ahaz? Or some even say maybe a child of Isaiah? A lot of people choose that. Liberals like that answer. Sometimes even conservatives do. B, the virgin-born child only. Exclusively, this is just talking about Jesus, not anything to do with somebody in Isaiah's day. Or C, a child in Ahaz's day or Isaiah's day who foreshadowed the Messiah. What do you guys think? You like B. Why do y'all like B? Because of Matthew? What do y'all like the New Testament that much? Yes. Matthew one let Let's read that real quick. Now all this took place to fulfill what the Lord, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So Matthew points back to this and says it's a fulfillment of Jesus being born. The Messiah has come. I like B. I'm going with B. But what's, what's, what's the problem with B if we try to read it back into the context of Isaiah? Why, why would some good and godly man go with C? What's the problem? See if you see it in Isaiah. What is it? You might not see it in a verse, but it is foreshadowing. The problem is it's assigned to Ahaz. 
How can it be a sign to Ahaz if it happens 700 and something years later? So people will say, look, the, the word here for virgin in Hebrew can just mean young woman. True, but that doesn't really help us because a young woman back then would have been a virgin. And it's clear in Matthew, he uses the Greek word for virgin. There's no other option. The difficulty is trying to fit what happens later into Ahaz's day. But our translations don't help us here. Let's look real quick at verse 13, 713. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Who's God speaking to? Ahaz, but beyond that, really, the house of David, the lineage from David, the kings of Israel and Judah. Everybody who's come from David, listen. Is it too slight a thing for you? Do you see that you there? That's in plural, y'all in Hebrew. That should be translated you all. But he's just talking to Ahaz. But no, he's not. He's talking to the house of David. All of them. All of the kings who've come since David. All of the unbelieving kings. And even the ones who believe but often struggle like Hezekiah to do the Lord's will. Is it too big a thing that you all will try the patience of God? You will, you, both of those yous in verse 13 are y'alls. Plural yous. Speaking to a group. He's taking Ahaz as the one in front of him. But he's talking to all the kings of Israel and Judah. The line of David. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give y'all a sign, plural. And so I have no problem saying the y'all is the house of David, signifying all of Israel. You unbelieving, stubborn people, you don't even do what God says. When I say ask for a sign, you don't do it. Eventually God's going to send all of y'all a sign. And it's going to be the most amazing sign that's ever happened in the history of the world that a child will be born of a virgin. That's the Messiah. So I take B. I can understand that trying to fit it into the context for the guys who take C, but I think B is really clear with Matthew. Now we just got to go back to Isaiah and figure out what he's saying. If you know Hebrew, it helps. Okay, we'll pick up next week with number three, and then we'll move into, after we finish these interpretive issues, how many is there? Six? We'll uh, move into Jeremiah next week. I'll bring some handouts from Isaiah too, since you guys need some, if you just want to keep them on hand. Lord, we give thanks for Isaiah, the prophet, the book. Even though he was likely killed for his ministry of proclaiming your word, he is a hero of the faith. He, he faithfully spent his whole life proclaiming the message you gave him. We pray that we might be faithful like him, that we might look at his writing, his book, and, and trust in the promises to come, trust in the Messiah that he described, and learn from Israel's mistakes. Teach us these things, O Lord, in the name of our Messiah and Savior. Amen.